This year marks the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II, as you know. 75th anniversary of when the Allied forces invaded Berlin, Germany. Of course, when they did, the Germans, including Hitler, knew all was lost. So the Russians are closing in from the east. The United States Army is closing in from the west. The question for the Germans, should they surrender to the Russians or should they surrender to the United States? Well, no one knew for sure what would happen if they surrendered to the Americans, even though they had been treated kindly by U.S. troops. But they knew full well what would happen if they were overtaken by the Russian generals. And so they opted for the United States. Now, to give you a picture of how horrific the Russian army was, there was a German teacher in Berlin named Gerd Buchwald. Russian troops whose specialty was pillage and physical abuse were overrunning his district in Berlin. One night they came to his apartment and they yelled over and over, Fra, Fra, they wanted his wife. Well, he came out and with an innocent smile as much as he could muster, he said to them, Fra Kaput. In other words, my wife is dead. Well, they didn't trust that, and so they went into his apartment and they ransacked it as he lay on the couch. Once they were satisfied that he had been telling them the truth, they left. He immediately went over to his door, locked it, then he went to his couch and he moved it and he helped his wife Elsa from the three foot by three foot hole he had dug in the concrete for her safety. You see, Elsa had a refuge because her bridegroom was committed to her safety. All right? To her rescue. Now, this is what David is pondering towards the end of his life. This text was written, was inspired by the Spirit, at least the words from David, at the end of his life as he is pondering how the Lord had been his refuge his entire life, even when things looked hopeless. He's reflecting on the fact that the Lord had been committed, even in the most hopeless times, to his deliverance. The song of deliverance. Now, 2 Samuel 22 is very important. All scripture is equally God-breathed, equally inspired of God. But there is something uniquely important about 2 Samuel 22. And I can give you a couple of reasons to drive that home. First of all, it's reported twice in scripture. And I'll tell you something of its significance. This is Psalm 18 with very little variance. This is Psalm 18. So this is given to us twice in our Bibles. Second reason I can tell you this is a very important psalm is that it's 
David's longest psalm. It's not the longest psalm in the Bible, that's Psalm 119. But it's the longest psalm that David wrote. And we see at the very beginning, verse 1. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So all of the other enemies, including his own self, he was his worst enemy, and from the hand of Saul. And that brings us to the first part of this song, this psalm. And here's the way I have outlined this as I've contemplated this passage. The first part of this passage we see as David contemplates his Lord, the Lord who is bigger than our enemies. Now notice with me in verse 2. He said, the Lord is my rock. Now, he's speaking this to the Lord. You see that verse 1. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. My refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. And so he begins with this ninefold description of Yahweh. If you want to know how to pray, memorize the Psalms. Reflect on the God of the Psalms. These are inspired descriptions of our Lord. Notice this again. The Lord is my rock. That is, he is steadfast. He's immovable. He is my fortress. He is my protector. No matter what is going on in the culture. No matter what is going on in the city. He is my fortress. He's a foolproof fortress. He is my deliverer. He is the God who delivers. This is one who speaks not only from the spirit, but also from experience. He is my God, my rock, my shield, the horn of my salvation, stronghold and refuge. He is my Savior. Now, when David thinks about salvation, he's not just thinking in terms of eternal salvation that we certainly know that he had by trusting in the coming substitute. But when we think in terms of salvation in the Old Testament, we're thinking holistically. God is going to fulfill his purposes for his people. And he will save you in and through all of life's circumstances to fulfill that purpose. Of course, we know the purpose that he had for David was that he was going to have a, a, a kingdom. And there would be a son who would come who would establish a universal kingdom. And so he's reflecting on that. And, and these images should make your heart sing. In a world where there is violence, in a world where there is enemies. As I've been thinking about this some, I just think our capacity. Now, this is one of the blessings of the last five or six months. No one would have chosen the, the last five or six months. No one in the world would have chosen that. But as I've been thinking about this, I think our capacity... For this psalm to make our hearts sing is greater now 
than it was six months ago when we had our I's dotted and our T's crossed and everything seemed to be going well. The economy was strong and things just seemed to be really doing well. I think in the midst of the storms, psalms like this really stir our hearts to, to sing. That's where David is. And, and this text, verses 2 and 3, I think, convey one umbrella truth. And it's this. The Lord is bigger than any fallenness the world can throw at us. The world is bigger than anything our enemies can throw at us. The Lord is bigger. This is a comprehensive description of your Lord. Your Lord is David's Lord. He's a savior. He's a stronghold. He is a fortress. He is a rock. What else do you need in your Lord? This should chasten all of our anxieties. It should chasten all of our fears. It should chasten all of our frustrations. And I want you to note the personal nature of these descriptions. My, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock. Nine times. Nine times. This is a personal God. This is the personal God. And, and that's why David saw this Lord as worthy to be praised. Notice in verse 4. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. When you're bored in your walk and it feels like drudgery to open your Bible, what do you do? You reflect on your God. You meditate on Him. And what the Spirit does is He stirs a heart of renewed praise. He restores the song in your heart. He says, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. I am saved from my enemies. David is centered. David is tethered to this Lord. And this is the normal life of faith. And so when I am not singing the way David is singing, that is a symptom that something's wrong in my life. All right? This is the normal life of faith right here. This is not some super saint that we're reading about here. He was a sinner like you and I who had been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And here's a man, though, who recognizes who his God is. He's beholding him, and it has stirred praise. And, and, and that praise stirs David to reflect more specifically on what the Lord has done in his life. In other words, praise is the song of those who behold. Praise is the song of those who behold. If I'm not praising, I'm not beholding. If I'm beholding, I'm praising. Well, that brings us to the second part of this psalm. The Lord who is committed to his king. Now, you can say, what, what relevance does that have for us? Well, let me just tell you. It has all the relevance in the world. The king represents the people under the old covenant and under the new covenant. As the king goes, so goes the people. And so if the, if the Lord is committed to the king, he's committed to his people. That's how this is to be applied. So as we reflect on that, be encouraged. Because this Lord is committed to a very flawed king. How much more so our king? Look with me in verse 5. For the ways of death 
encompass me. He's he's painting a picture. He's painting a picture of his life that was largely a struggle. The torrents of destruction assailed me. That is not an exaggeration. The cords of Sheol entangled me. That is, he always lived within an inch of death. The snares of death confronted me. This is a man who, beginning with Saul, who lived on the brink of death virtually his entire life and reign. Del Ralph Davis says that what David says in poetry here, he once said to Jonathan in prose. Back in 1 Samuel 20, there is but a step between me and death. That's what he told Jonathan all the way back in 1 Samuel 20. And that had been his life since he had been, especially since he had defeated Goliath. And that summarized his life for at least a decade with Saul, and certainly after that. In fact, when we looked at 1 Samuel 18 to 1 Samuel 31, those were the days where Saul was consistently chasing and pursuing David and wanting to kill him. Now, you can see a man escaping a powerful king once or twice. But what are the chances for a man to escape death for a decade? When, for instance, Saul had pinned David, you remember that? And David was all but done. A messenger comes running to Saul and said, The Philistines have invaded the land. And Saul had to leave when he all but had David. When David's own deceit had brought him to the place where he was going to fight with Israel's perennial enemies, the Philistines, against Israel. The Lord moved on the hearts of these Philistine lords and and they wanted him removed. They didn't trust him. That was the providence of God. When David was at wit's end, the Lord caused Saul to die in battle, which enabled David to return to Israel and be enthroned. And when civil war raged for seven years, God caused strife between Abner and Ishbosheth to bring the northern tribes eventually to come under the rule and the reign of David. And when Absalom had David dead to rights, the Lord, what did he do? He reversed, he made the counsel of Ahithophel, Abner's counselor, foolish. In response to David's prayer. Now, to be fair, as I just said, David had an advantage over his enemies. So do you. He had a remarkable, significant advantage over his enemies. And we see that in verse 7. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. Do you realize Antifa can't do this? Do you realize that the progressive liberals who want to destroy and revolutionize this country, they can't do this. You can. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. 
To my God I called. They can't say that. Their God's a false God. From his temple. I love that. The temple is where God, his manifest, special, revelatory, Shekinah presence dwelled. Temple was where atonement was made so that sinners like us could be reconciled and commune with God. From his temple, he heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. That is beautiful. That is glorious. That is hopeful. And that is universally true for every believer. In fact, think about this. This is how important this text is. Jonah was meditating on this text when he was in the belly of the well. Of all the things that Jonah could have been meditating on, like, I smell like fish guts. I'm, I, I don't know if I'm going to get out of this. He's meditating on 2 Samuel 22. Listen to what Jonah said. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, out of the belly of Sheol. That's the very terminology David had used. I cried to you and you heard my voice. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. That's the way he felt. And yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. Jonah is meditating on this psalm in the midst of chaos. And that's a word to us. That's what David is doing here. It's just glorious. Now notice in verse 9 or verse 8. Then the earth reeled. So in response to David's prayer. I love this. The earth reeled and rocked. I wish I was poetic like that. My goodness. Y'all give me a raise. (laughs) For me to be poetic, I have to read somebody. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked. Why? Because he. Who is he? The fortress, the stronghold, the rock, the Savior, the Lord. Because he was angry smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth glowing coals flamed forth from him now david's cry was like our cries often one of terrified weakness have you ever been so weak all you could just is utter sounds all right? He's talking about every time he was in a, a, a bad place, a place where it looked like he would be destroyed. His cry was one of terrified weakness, but the Lord's response, terrifying power. Weak, audible sounds came from David's mouth. Devouring fire came from the Lord's mouth. That's what's being described here. And so when David was consistently saved from his enemies, we see nothing of what this text describes. We don't see earthquakes. We don't see the earth reeling and rocking and the foundations of the heaven trembling. We don't see any of that. So is David exaggerating? No. 
Not at all. This poetry gives us a glimpse behind the curtain. All right? That's what this text is doing for us. It's giving us a glimpse behind the curtain of what the Lord is doing. In each case, His people cry out to Him in desperation. This should encourage us all. And I love the key here. Notice, because He was angry. Because who was angry? The Lord. And he was angry. Why? Because his Messiah was being attacked. His king was being attacked. Now we live in a time when there are professing Christians. I say professing. Who discount the anger of the Lord. But I would submit to you that's one of the most comforting things about him. He's angry. It's gloriously hopeful to me that he's angry about attacks on his Christ. And all of the violence and the wickedness and the revolutions that stem from that attack on his Christ and on his King. Gloriously hopeful for all of us. Notice in verse 10. Because when he gets angry, he doesn't remain passive. In fact, he's never passive. He bowed the heavens and came down. Now, he came down when? In response to prayer. Not in response to complaining and belly aching. Like I often do. He came down in response to prayer. He bowed the heavens. He came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. And so David is very earthbound. He's like you and I. David is not some superhero saint. He's like you and I that God just appointed to be his special king. So David is earthbound, and and he appears, he feels like his life is always on the path to Sheol. The Lord was in heaven with thick darkness under his feet. He's exalted, he's transcendent. And nevertheless, he bowed the heavens and he came down. I love that, he came down. When the king prayed, God wasn't just enraged He did something down here. Notice in verse 11. He rode on a cherub and flew. That's kingly language. David is his human king. He represents the kingdom of God in a a real but faulty way. The true king comes on a cherub and he flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy. I love that. He can do that because he created everything, right? Thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows 
and he scattered them. Who's them? The enemies of the king. Lightning and routed them. So this is reminding us, please meditate on this. Let it permeate your bones. This is reminding us that our God is greater than the threats against his king. In fact, he uses the word them twice in verse 15. These are the king's enemies. Notice in verse 16, then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast, the breath of his nostrils. Now, virtually every commentator will tell you that David is picking up the language of Exodus 19. When God had delivered his people from bondage and was constituting them as a new people. Now notice in verse 17, he sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. It was God who did it. David was always, it seems at, at all times, he was in a position. And you feel this way. Some, you, you feel this way sometimes. David felt this his entire life. Even before he was anointed king, he was out there having to fight off lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, that's where he was. That's his life. And they were too mighty for him. They confronted me in the day of my calamity. But the Lord was my support. Now I want you to see something beautiful here. You can't see it in the English. The verb drew out. Verse 17. He drew me out of many waters. In the Hebrew, that sounds like the word Moses. That's what it sounds like when you pronounce that. It sounds like the word Moses. In fact, this verb occurs only one other time. Well, it occurs in Psalm 18 because that's the same psalm. It occurs one other place in the Bible. Where do you think that is? Exodus 2, verse 10, where Pharaoh's daughter gave Moses his name because I drew him out of the water. There you have it. David is reflecting on, listen, all the scriptures, all the writers of scripture believe the word of God was in air and infallible. All right? So he's meditating on Exodus. And he's thinking about the time when God miraculously, providentially saved Moses. And why did he save Moses? Because Moses was going to be his deliverer. God delivered Moses because his plan was for Moses to deliver his people. You think there's a pattern developing? And the reason God delivered David time and time again was because he had a plan of deliverance for a people. All right? So to deliver the king is to deliver the people. 
Are you familiar with that pattern? Are you familiar with that theme? It's a very hopeful theme. I don't care what they tell you on the news. I don't care, you tell, uh, care what these terrorist organizations threaten. To deliver the king is to deliver the people. Well, notice in verse 20. They've confronted him. The word was his support. And he brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Now, at the risk of sounding like Joel Osteen, he delights in you. He delights in you. Now, I have a different reason for saying that. He delights in you, and we can say God is for me. God is for us because he's for his king. And as the king goes, so goes his people. God is for us. Who can be against us? And he is for us in his son, the greater king. He brought me into a broad place. Now again, this is Exodus language. Now why do I say that? At the burning bush, when the Lord revealed himself to Moses that he drew out, here's what he said. I have come down, Exodus 3.8, to deliver them. Who's them? His people. How can you deliver them? They are in bondage to the most powerful, oppressive nation in the world. And God is bigger than all of our enemies. He's bigger than all the fallenness of this world. I have come down, he says, to deliver them. Notice, to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. Same language. Just as he plans to bring those people out of the broad, into the broad land, we see God does this with David. Beautiful. This broad place speaks of freedom from tyranny and oppression. And ultimately, that's going to be true consummately when he returns. But even now, there's freedom spiritually. There is freedom from tyranny and oppression spiritually. We are more than conquerors through this king. Well, that brings us to the next part of this passage. And maybe it's one of the most important parts of this text. As David reflects on this, the Lord who takes away sin. Notice with me in verse 21. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. Now, that's going to be confusing for a moment, but hopefully I can explain that. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. There are some commentators who believe David had to have written this before Bathsheba and Uriah. And I'm saying no. He wrote it at the end of his life, and I'm going to explain that. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me. And from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. Now, there's only three possible interpretations here. He wrote this before David and Bathsheba. I don't think that's even possible based on the fact that he wrote it after the Lord had delivered him from all of his enemies. Is that the end of his life? 
Second, he's developed amnesia. And he has forgotten what happened earlier in his reign. Is this Santa Claus theology? No. So here's the question, what gives? Well, here's the third option. And I absolutely believe this is the, 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 uh, the third option. And, and by the way, this is the option for you too in your own personal life. Let's not forget, even after all of the wickedness and the sin in his life, killing a man to cover up an affair that he had with his wife. There were many other sins we've seen along the way. Lapses of faith. Let's not forget when he repented what Nathan said to him in chapter 12, verse 13. The Lord has put away your sin. Now, what does that mean? That means for those who believe, the Lord has put away your sin. That seems to be too good to be true. Well, then you get it. If, if that's what you think, then you got it. The Lord put away your sin. And then we looked at Psalm 51, didn't we? We, we? we spent an entire week on Psalm 51. And what did he say in Psalm 51 too? Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. You say, well, I, you don't know what I've done, pastor. Do you know what David did? He was a murderer and an adulterer. And that's just the beginning of the list. Purge me with hyssop. The hyssop was the branch where they would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. He's trusting in the sacrifice that would die in his place. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And then in Psalm 32, a text he wrote after David, uh, Bathsheba and Uriah, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And so what seems audacious in verses 26 to 31 is actually David taking God at his word. You get that? David was clean because the Lord had washed him. That's very hopeful for every sinner. And the more you recognize your sin, the more you're going to love the Lord. That's what Jesus said. And, and so David can depict himself in this way, not because he has a short memory, but because he sees himself as God now sees him. The gospel has taken traction in his life. Now notice in verse 26. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. I want you to note a word here, the word tortuous in the ESV. You, your translation may read cunning. It can be translated that way as well. It's the word in Hebrew, tithophel. What does that sound like? A hithophel. 
It almost sounds identical to Ahithophel, his counselor who had turned on him. All right? I think that's intentional. This was the man that had turned on David. We read in our family worship recently that psalm, Psalm 55, I believe, Psalm 54, 55, where David is reflecting on his friend that he had eaten with who turned on him. I don't think he ever got past it. He, he thought about it, the pain. There's some kinds of pain that you just live with. But notice, you cannot outflank God. The ungodly cannot outflank God. It appeared that David was in a hopeless place when Ahithophel sided with his son, Absalom. And what does he say? No. With the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. Now, is David simply saying here that God rewards good people and punishes bad people? That's what every other religion in the world teaches. He gives rewards to the good and he, and he, and he punishes the bad. Well, that can't be the case. Because God had been merciful to David when David was not merciful to Uriah the Hittite. All right? And he had dealt purely with David when David had not acted purely with Bathsheba. But the hint of this meaning is found, or the meaning of this is found in verse 27. Notice in 27, with the purified you deal purely. And so the people with whom God shows himself merciful and blameless and deals purely with are those who have been purified. This is Reformation theology in seed form. In other words, as Luther said, I love this quote from Luther, the love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of God had created in David that which was pleasing to God. And David recognized that. And I think this is confirmed in verse 33 as we're going to see in a moment. But notice in 28, you save a humble people. But your eyes are on them haughty to bring them down. By the way, that's why we have to preach on sin. There are preachers that believe we don't need to talk about sin because people already know they're, 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 they make mistakes. But what sin does doesn't browbeat us. It, it, it drives us in humility to the refuge. The only refuge where God's wrath was poured out, the Son of God. He only saves those who've been humbled by their sin. If you haven't been humbled by your sin, you don't repent of your sins, you can't be saved. He didn't come to save the righteous. Of course, there's none righteous. There he's referring to the self-righteous. He comes to those who are humble. Is your life marked by that humility? It's a very important question. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, 
My God lightens my darkness. Let me just tell you this. I was born in 1968. I know a whole lot about 1968. Though I don't remember it, I have studied it. 1968 was a dark time in our culture. There was all kinds of assassinations. Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King Jr. There was riots and chaos in the streets. Some of you remember that. And let me just tell you this, though. God's light against all darkness is undefeated. That's just the truth. And in the midst of all of that, you are my lamp, O Lord. My God lightens my darkness. David had literally lived in darkness in the caves for a decade on the run from Saul. For by you, I run against a troop. Now, that's military language. God hasn't called you particularly to the military, maybe. But he does have a calling and a mandate and a commission for you. And what David is saying is God resourced my calling. He resourced it. And by my God, I can leap over a wall. He was able to avoid and escape when things look completely hopeless. This God, his way is perfect. Meditate on that. His way is perfect. Even now, his way is perfect. This hasn't caught him by surprise. This is not going to destroy his church. His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. There's a difference. There's two Greek words for knowledge. Oida, that's academic, theoretical. When we're first saved, that's basically all we have. Then there's gnosko, experiential knowledge. David had come to realize that. His word proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. And he brings us to the next part of this passage. The Lord who resources his king. Verse 32. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. There's the key. He's made David's way blameless. David was anything but blameless. We only know about his public sins. We don't even know about his private sins. And everybody here has those private sins. Thoughts that you've had, motivations that you've had, actions that you've committed in the past that you wouldn't want a single person in Fisherville to know. David was a terrible sinner. A vile sinner. And this God has made his way blameless. And that's your God. And when you recognize that, what does it do? It stirs faith, hope, and love. He can't get over it. He made my feet like the feet of a deer. I didn't deserve that. I deserve to die. Set me secure on the heights This is just glorious language. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. Now, God may not call you to do what David was called to do, but he has called you to do something in the kingdom of God. And just as he resourced David, he resources his people. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your gentleness made me great. What does that mean? When David was sinning against God... God was gently disciplining David. 
Now, it didn't appear to be gentle from our perspective, but from an infinitely holy God's perspective, it was gentleness. He could have just judged David, but by his gentleness, by his discipline, he made David great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me. And my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies, destroyed them, did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them, I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me seek under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. Those who hated me and I destroyed them. They looked but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord but he didn't answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. Now we learn something of the nature of the kingdom of God here, okay? Not only is the Lord angered, enraged, and outraged by his enemies, his anger will be expressed through his king. We're learning that in this shadow picture, a shadow that points us to someone greater. They will be defeated by the king, just as David's enemies were defeated by his own hand. And, and I want you to note verse 42 again. There's a massive difference between David and his enemies. When, the, when the, David cried to the Lord, the Lord came down. And when the enemies cried out, there was none to save them. None to save them. We have a massive advantage. Infinitely massive advantage over all the nonsense we're seeing on TV. They have no one to cry to. Why? Because they're opposed to God's king. It's not a good idea. Notice in verse 44. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as head of the nations. People whom I had not ser known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Now, is, is this exaggeration? Because David, at the very height of his reign, only ruled a small plot of land in, in the ancient Near East. And yes, all the nations in, that, in David's world, this was true of. But there's something greater going on. Because David understands what the Lord has promised. There's a son coming. David was promised that in 2 Samuel 7. And his rule and reign is going to be much more universal than what happens there in Israel. And brings us, notice, he says foreigners lost heart and, and came trembling out of their fortresses. And that brings us to the very end of this passage. We've got to close this here. Just as he began by reminding us that the Lord is bigger than our enemies, he closes that way. Verse 47, the Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. The Lord who gave me vengeance and brought me down, peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies, 
You exalted me. Notice the verb. Those who rose against me, you delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows hesed, steadfast love, to his Messiah, his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. So the heart of the theology of 1st and 2nd Samuel is summarized. You remember, it's been two years. You're two years older than when we began this. All right? The heart of the theology of Samuel is summarized in Hannah's song that we looked at so many months and years ago in this song of deliverance. This psalm begins and ends with a reference to Hannah's song. And we looked at Hannah's song and said, this is the table of contents for the book of Samuel. Hannah had said in 1 Samuel 2.10, the Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Before the king had been born, before Israel even had a king, and we saw then that this is the first time in the Bible that the king and the Messiah are connected. We come to realize in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel that the Messiah who's coming will be the king. And now we know, many chapters later, that king is going to be found in the offspring of David. We've seen just that, in other words. That in spite of the fact that David is everything in many ways that this king will not be. This king will come and do what David could not do. And that's why Mary, let me connect these points, we're going to close here. That's why Mary, in her magnificent, in Luke chapter 1, picks up Hannah's song and picks up this song. 2 Samuel 22, and she says this, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Like David, this greater king was threatened consistently with destruction to the point of actual destruction across and on that cross, he took the wrath so David wouldn't have to. So that David could be purified in God's sight. He took the wrath so you and I wouldn't have to. And like David, the greater son cried in anguish to the father. And like David, but even in a greater way, he was rescued from his enemy by a resurrection. By a resurrection. But unlike David, his righteousness, his blamelessness, his purity wasn't merely imputed to him. It was inherent. He fulfilled all righteousness. He is the king to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. He sits at the right hand of God right now with that authority. 
And there's nothing that can happen with his enemies that can mute that or stunt that. It just gives us an occasion to see him work. That's so hopeful. Why so downcast, oh my soul? Put your hope in God. Now what the psalmist tells us? And through the Great Commission, that's what we're to be around right now. The great news of his reign is going to go to all the nations and he will subdue all those who refuse to repent. Indeed, he will be the head of the nations, as David says here. And this promise, let me just close here. That promise determines and directs history. Black Lives Matter, Antifa, and every other Marxist wicked group does not determine history. Promises of God in the Messiah determines and directs history. And because the kingdom of God rests on that promise, let me offer you this. It's foolproof. It's riot proof. It's Marxist proof. It's pandemic proof. All right? It's pandemic proof. It's hard to believe that. It's my individual sin proof. It's our corporate sins proof. Ultimately, Jesus is that offspring. And here's how G, uh, Paul, the apostle, said it. In prison, the maritime prison, where he was beaten and ultimately would die, he says to the church, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Get this. How did 2 Samuel 22 end? The offspring of David. This is my gospel. This is our gospel. Let us muse. Let us meditate. Let the truths of this gospel permeate our bones. Let the world see the hope in how Fisherville communicates this hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. All expressed supremely in the offspring of David. Our hope, our refuge, our strong tower, our mighty fortress, our Savior. May these truths comfort our hearts today and challenge us where we need to be challenged. I know, Lord, I struggle with low-grade anxiety. I struggle with low-grade dis discouragement. And I know others here struggle with other similar sins. May these truths inform our perspective about everything. And Lord, if there's any here today that have never trusted in Jesus the King, may they recognize He's going to be the last King standing in the end. And may they put their trust in Him. His life, His crucifixion, where he satisfied your justice on sin for those who would trust him, his resurrection from the grave. And we ask these things in the name of our Christ, our King. Amen.